0: After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there?
1: questions.
0: If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, flying solo because one of my co hosts uh, just got a grant and is working that into her budget. And the other co host is still knee deep in the middle of the BAFTAs and the Indie Spirit Awards. And that's what happens when you are a film expert and people want to know what you think about movies. But that's okay because I have an amazing guest today with an amazing movie. Jeremy Lalonde is Back on the show. Hey, dude. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am so good. I am inside. I am warm. I am very grateful for both of those things. How are you holding up?
1: I I shoveled our front yard, and I went in the back and shoveled that and came back, and I was like, looks like I didn't do a goddamn thing. (laughs) So uh, I'm getting my exercise today. That's for sure.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm sure your mailman appreciates it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got a package this morning. I was like, "Who the hell is delivering?" Don't do this. No. I'll get it tomorrow.
0: This is why you people were striking, and we stood with you. Yeah. Ugh, I don't get it. You know, it's funny because we work in film and television like seventeen-hour days, but whenever anybody else is expected to do things, we're like, "What are you doing?"
1: Yeah, we're very appreciative. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I because I have like win- I have decent winter gear, so I'm okay. I was actually sweating out there walking the dog because I have like really, really solid winter gear. Anyway. But uh, but here we are, Canadians. Canadians. Right? We complain about the weather even though we're totally equipped to handle it.
0: Uh, and also that we live here on purpose. These, this is a choice we made.
1: I like seasons.
0: I, me too. You know, I was talking to a dude in uh, South Africa the other day. I was doing a gig with him. He's like, yes, I just got out of the pool. It's warm and beautiful. And I was like, that is a choice you have made. You chose South Africa. I chose Canada. And you know what? I stand by it. It's okay.
1: But you know what? We, we get to do that in the summer too, and we appreciate it more. That's just like a Wednesday for that guy.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I'd like every Wednesday to be like that. You know what my problem is, is I think I just love soup so much, and it's probably never soup weather in South Africa.
1: This is fair. I'm the same way. Fall fall is my jam.
0: Okay. Pumpkin Spice Dude?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I like all the stuff white people like.
0: (laughs) You're right there. Well, you picked a movie today about someone who is definitely not basic. What movie did you pick?
1: Molly Maxwell.
0: I had never heard of this movie before.
1: Oh, that's so sad. I
0: know, I know. And now I know of it. I can't stop talking about it. And my partner is very angry at me.
1: Um, Oh, no.
0: It's totally head gum. Like, I can't stop looking at all the different angles of it and thinking about it. And then the more I read interviews with uh, the director and writer, Sarah St. Ange, I've been like, okay, okay, this is just a lot. So how did you first come across this film?
1: Yeah, uh, so I first came across this film because I was on a panel with Sarah at Lyft, I believe. It was at uh, Liaison of Independent Film in Toronto, a, a great little indie organization for those who don't know of it. Emerging filmmakers, check it out; it's great. Whether we were on the panel there or not, you should still check it out. Uh, and so I was on a panel with Herb, both about we. Had j- I just my first feature film had come out a year or two earlier, and. Um, and so, and I didn't know anything about the movie at the time. The movie, her mo- the movie actually hadn't been released yet. Uh, and so, I got to see one scene from it, and I'll we'll get into that later what the scene was. But that scene just went made me sit up and go, "Holy shit! I want to see this movie right now." And and then we just got on really, really well and became really good friends. And so, I got to see the movie a lot sooner than most people because I got invited to the cast and crew screening, which is just a couple weeks later. And uh, and then I saw it again. I've probably seen it like half a dozen times or more because I really, really dug it. Uh, I even have the I even have it at home. I bought it. Uh, I have my own. I have my own copy.
0: Is see, here's the thing: is that I don't know if I could watch it again because I think I might be too enraged the next time I watch
1: it. Oh, look like, at that! Well, yeah. because
0: it's just so, it's just so um, visceral. Like the experience of watching it is so visceral. In my notes, I think by the end of the movie, I'm literally just evolves to fuck this guy, fuck that guy, fuck her. Like it just gets gets aggressive and I don't normally get aggressive like that so I'm glad this fired me up that way but that's what movies should do to us right
1: well I will tell you this I mean uh should we should we mention what the movie's about for those who are just randomly listening and not uh even yeah. though I mean we're gonna spoil the hell out of everything I totally. assume
0: uh, I will also say that this movie is available on iTunes go give it your money it is totally worth your time it's great pause this now. Okay, when you're ready, Jeremy.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, here's the thing, too. It's interesting, because I have not seen this movie in a couple of years now, and, you know, our world has changed drastically. And the stories we tell and the stories that we question telling uh, are are shifting radically. Mm. And so, it's the first time I've seen this film under that lens, and, and it made me really go, ooh. And, and I'd love to kind of, I haven't seen Sarah in a little bit, but I'd kind of love to, to chat with her and talk to her about her feelings on her own movie at some point, because what it's about is it's you know I mean you could really simplify it and say it's you know one of those uh, May October relationship movies. Is, are those the months they use for that analogy? Do you know I what I'm talking think about? So
0: yeah, I mean it depends so. on how old they are. I'm sure somebody out there does that, but yeah, <laughs> the, that's, mu- that's months,
1: the months get longer or shorter depending. That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, like Harold and Maude is December to December, but of many <laughs> decades <laughs> apart. Uh, so it's a story about. A, a student who is infatuated with her teacher, and they get they start a relationship up, um, and so it's a kind of a coming of age story. Not a, it's not kind of it is a coming of age story, uh, but also with this forbidden romance angle to it.
0: Well, it's interesting because when you said you wanted to do this, I mentioned it to my co-host Cam, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I've seen it." He's like, "You are either going to absolutely love it, or you're going to totally hate it," and I was like. Oh great, it's one of those. And then I found out it was about a relationship of a teacher and a student and I was like, oh man, oh man this is going to be so tough. And then I watched it and was like, this is like nothing else I've ever seen before. This is a totally different angle on it. A totally different point of view. Um, And it's, again, like I said, it's very engaging and unusual and visceral. What was your first impression when you watched it then versus re-watching it? How has it aged for you over time?
1: Oh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge... I thought we could talk about that the whole time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what, what really stands out for me about the film, what I thought about it a lot after watching it this time, um, I, think, I, mean, I think when I saw it the first time, uh, and the first scene I saw that they showed at this panel... Was the scene when she goes over to his place for the first time, and she and he lets her in. Oh. And, it, and it's the and it's that it's such a beautiful, awkward, innocent scene, but it's also kind of romantic and bizarrely sex sexy and then sweet and awkward. It's kind of masterful, and it's balancing multiple tones at once. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as she she buries her head under his shirt, I just kind of die. You know, and he he hugs her, and then kind of sends her on her way, and it just it's just such a bizarre, interesting scene that it just made me go, "What is the rest of this movie like?" Because this is not like this is not what I'm expecting from a movie like this, and the movie kind of constantly does a few things like that throughout. But what it really struck me was that, you know, this is a movie, uh, and I've seen Sarah's uh, kind of director's vision lookbook for this movie before she even shot it. And it's like this is a movie where she knew exactly the kind of movie she wanted to make. And it feels like it, it comes from such a strong, authentic voice. And and to find a, a filmmaker to, to have that strong of a voice on their first project coming out of the gate is a pretty unique and rare thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talked about the visual of this. It is beautiful. Like, it stays within the same tone, but, like, moments where the two of them are together are, like, very soft and warm, and there's almost, like, a diffusion going on, and then uh, when she's in the school, everything is very hard and sharp and at home, you know? Like, everything, it's a very warm movie while still being cold and distancing at the same time. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I think what really I thought about a lot this time watching it was, you know, despite all the other stuff, um, which we'll definitely get into, is that it, it really struck me as a film about people that are just trying to figure out what their roles are, um, either as like a young teen or as a teacher, or as a parent, and how we're all just kind of bluffing our way through life. Um, and that's the kind of thing that speaks to me is, you know, as someone who, like many others, kind of has imposter syndrome, you just go, what, you know, these people don't know what they're doing. None of them do. The parents don't. The kids don't. The teachers don't. And they're all just bluffing their way through life right now trying to pretend that they have, they're have they responsible and, and, you know, know what they're doing. And that's what I kind of liked about it.
0: And that's something I love, too, is that I, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, is this a movie about choices, about the the choices people are making? And it is, but not really. It's more a movie about boundaries and people trying to figure out where the boundaries are and how they shift and when they, when foots need to go down versus when you need to let someone grow and change. And what the role of a child versus an adult actually is Um, and especially we'll get into the end of the film um, the choice the mother makes at the end which to me is just mind-boggling but I understand why she makes it and I think that's the the beauty of this film is that you're able to see all of the sides. And I watched an interview with Sarah where she was talking about how normally you would hear the rotten jail bastard narrative about any sort of film about an authority figure and their student, uh, be they male or female. Um, And this one she does her best to kind of be like this is why Molly is making the choices she's making.
1: Yeah, and 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 just for to give you like a sense of kind of how I go come into a movie like this is in the high school I was in, I had three friends dating teachers yeah, but- at some point. Not necessarily like all at the same time. It wasn't <laughs> we didn't have a, a that big of a problem with the school, but I I have three friends that over that I know of dated teachers either, but one pers- like when I was in high school they were they were together, and it was one of those big things. It was like ugh, but also they were happy, and, and she was you know, you know she was eighteen going on forty, you know, so she didn't seem like she was being manipulated by this guy, and they got married eventually, and they have kids now. So it's like it went on to have, you know, a a, a completely happy story, and you know, like like uh, even uh, Ben says in the movie. You know, 200 years ago, no one would have a problem if he took her as as his child bride. And it's interesting how, you know, in the wake of everything that's come out in the last couple of years, you know, there's no shortage of these these stories that have been told over time of of older men and younger women um, and how now it's 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 really, really become these uh, it's you know he calls her a hand grenade at one point and that's exactly what she is and that's kind of what the movie is now too right Uh, because it's tricky because it's almost like now forbidden love stories are more taboo now than they ever were
0: and honestly I think this is a film that is about forbidden love but it's a forbidden love that should be forbidden love Um, because the whole idea of a 16 year old I believe he's 26 is that right
1: yeah and to be so to be fair just to my friends who I will not name uh, He was just at a teacher's college, He's like 22. So their age gap was like four years.
0: So there is is that entirely, and that there is definitely more of like a maturity similarity to those two things. And I mean, you said she was like 18, so she's rapidly approaching adulthood. But with this, I think the minute you throw any sort of authority into it, that's when it—that's when it's wrong. Period. Flat out. Choices need to be made that that needs to stop. I had actually something similar happen. And I'm, again, not going to name names like you did in university where there was a student dating one of the professors and there was like a full investigation into him and his behavior. And, and I think looking back on it now and looking at the situation, what was happening, I'm like, oh yeah, there should have been. That was wildly inappropriate it's interesting because as a child you don't necessarily see why that's the case you're like oh i'm attracted to this person and my hormones are firing but as adults we understand the power authority has and that as soon as it's someone who's able to make decisions or get that person alone or is meant to be mentoring them in some way that's when it gets not okay what do you think
1: yeah i mean it's it's funny because the college university students dating teachers almost feels like a trope you know Mm -hmm. it's it's so it's one of those things that almost gets a gets a pass like it is the whole i mean the whole issue is the hand grenade and that's what makes this an interesting movie to talk about now because you could argue i mean you one could argue that some some people in their their late teens early 20s Uh, can can make decisions for themselves far better than some 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds can at their age, you know? That it's like with age doesn't necessarily come wisdom or maturity. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a tough thing to just lay down. I find anyway, I just think it's one of those things where to like make, I don't ever want to make a totalitarian statement about, this kind of stuff because I would just find that there's so many exceptions to everything. I think that you've got to draw a line somewhere, obviously like you can't have, you know, adults can't date children. Obviously that's something that's just not, shouldn't have ever been okay. And absolutely isn't okay. Now, you know, when the lines certainly start to become blurry, I think this movie, uh, I think the nice thing what, what Sarah does well here is that she makes her just young enough that it is not appropriate. Like a sixteen, if she was eighteen, it's kind of a different story. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she's sixteen and he's twenty six, it does keep it in that line where you're like, oh, I don't. It's no, no, no matter how mature she is or how smart she is, she still has those moments where she's, uh, you know, she turns back into a child. Like there's the, like what I mean, the the only redeeming kind of grace he has in terms of allowing this to, to go on is, you know, at least for the majority of it, these rules he sets in place about close stay on and, and all this other stuff. And she keeps on challenging him and for good purpose. Like there's even that great little moment where she grabs his beer bottle and takes a swig and, and he gets upset with her and she's like, really?
0: That's (laughs) your line. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and she and fair, you know, uh, but then you get that moment where she takes it to the next step, and and you know her head dips out of the frame, and you're you know you're led to believe she's giving him um, fellatio, and then all of a sudden she breaks into a fit of laughter and, and admits that she doesn't know what the hell she's doing, and it's just adorable moment. But it's also the kind of moment that should make him go, "Oh fuck! What the hell am I doing?"
0: Totally. Even when he says you're acting childish, it's like, "Yes, because she's a child. That's not a light bulb for you. That's fascinating."
1: And it, and his defense is that he's he's like, "Don't worry, He got mad at her because she wore pigtails to school. Yeah. And it's like, why? Because she reminded you that she's a child.
0: <laughs> exactly. That there's a weird maturation, but you also get these hints of that he's afraid of women. Like he talks about the uh, woman who's the director, who obviously is like a little bit flaky. You know, it's making bold choices. In that Macbeth is a woman, um, but he's like she's so boring, and I'm like, is she boring or does she challenge you? Like, what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's I mean, when you and and to to your point you were making earlier, which I completely agree with. Like, whenever it's a situation where you look at the two people, and clearly this one person is mentally dominating this other person uh in a way that is influential beyond the other person's control uh you know that's when it becomes an issue and 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 also often it's because that person can't deal with anyone that's on their actual level and so they've got to take uh and not not pick on but you know that's not the right word but you know kind of go after somebody who is an easier target i guess Or low-hanging fruit or something. I can't come up with the right phrase for it, but I think you know what I mean. I'm
0: picking up what you put down. And I think uh, you had something really going there when we were talking about boundaries and people not really knowing what they're doing and people are floundering. And, of course, when you have, like, a teacher-student relationship, someone's going to yell, you know, where are the parents? And, honestly, it's kind of the, the relationship that Sarah builds between these two parents where there's no boundaries being set. And when they are, they're just being like thrown out the window left and right. And It's almost like a competition of who can be more of her friend. Um, And just like the wildly inappropriate things that happened that has been interesting for me. Like I said, I haven't been able to stop talking about this, but the scene where the mom wants to have a sex talk with her daughter, which totally fair at 16, you should be having sex talks with your daughter. And if you're comfortable sharing personal stuff and she's comfortable with that too, even better to buy your kid books about sex, totally fine to buy your kid a vibrator unsolicited without a conversation that's a whole other level of like oh that's desperately inappropriate but my friend was like is it I'm like yes sex toys are like poetry they're personal
1: yeah I mean that's just it's such a weird and also to assume that you know she doesn't already know what's going on down there like children you know children masturbate they rub up against things you know it's not an uncommon thing so it's like kids figure that out yeah you know
0: but what's interesting is that, again, as they're playing with the boundaries, the only person who puts boundaries actually into place and stands by it is the flaky teacher who's the head of the the school, played by Richard Clark, and who I'm a huge fan of, because, you know... Yeah, Raymond. Uh, Raymond, because the whole film he's just been like, you know, star child, and find your bliss, and do this, and then the minute he sees there's anything inappropriate go- going on, he puts his foot down, the police are called, boom, boom, there's the rules.
1: Yeah, he's the best character, he's the smartest character in the movie.
0: He's the only one who actually knows what he's doing, which is fascinating. Yeah. So to have that voice of authority, I think it's just such a nice, beautiful bow on the whole film of like, yeah, that's actually what should happen. Yeah. And and to say, you know, and then to, to brilliantly bring in the police officer who then comes in and is like, you know, they make you feel special. I had a, a basketball coach who had been dating four other young women. It's like, yeah, that's what grooming looks like it's it's there it's a predator
1: mm-hmm. exactly exactly and it's like I mean the one nice thing is that and, and this isn't to defend the <laughs> Ben at all is that you do get a sense that they have this connection which is really special and unique but it's also a shame that it's just like they couldn't have had that and, and kept the innocence with it and, and the idea of just like to have you know be kindred spirits be you know why does it have to become something else when uh until she's the right age and, and and he and he started off that way but then you know the dude in him takes over and and slowly but surely she worms her way in because she you know she's young and thinks she knows better and and he doesn't have enough of uh of a backbone or not backbone but enough just willpower to just Hold to his own convictions that he's trying to set up. He's constantly trying to set up boundaries for himself and then constantly letting them just falter.
0: And this is also a film about experimentation. I mean, one of the first scenes you see the, the girls in, um, all the friends, they're dropping acid and going to a party. Um, and then, you know, they're smoking weed and they're drinking and they're talking about boys. And it's like, oh yeah, they are, they're experimenting and they're learning. So why wouldn't a forbidden relationship with a teacher just be another form of experimentation? Yeah, and
1: this is, and this is also a school full of people that are, they, they I think the quote is uh, precious little snowflakes you know and it's funny because I think I'm both jealous of Phoenix School the school and I think I might have hated the kind of kids that go to it (laughs) Uh, I don't know I think I would have part of me would have liked the idea of going to that school but I also think I would have not liked it at all
0: well, it's an interesting point of view on it because, I mean, you see that one scene where he does single her out because she's wearing pigtails, but they do a really, or Sarah does a really good job of showing that none of the kids are really paying attention. So, like, one is reading another book, one is on their phone, one's doing this, one's doing that, and it's like, are they creating anything or learning anything?
1: Well, that's and that's kind of like, even Molly says it herself, she says, everyone at the school is a little too special you know and the idea that is like when when they have all these things and exceptions to all the rules is like what do they it's, it's kind of like it's it's a it's a school full of outcasts um but it's like but then everyone's normal too like you, the, you create your own sense of normalcy when everyone's special no one's special that kind of thing right
0: Exactly. Then you do see that her brother actually is special, that he's a piano protege. Yeah, and you're like, oh no, there is a kid who actually is driven, you see the work. Because Molly is not stupid, she's just lazy. And she's directionless. You she see the potential in her, which is what makes it even sadder that there, she's capable of so much, but she's just being given too much freedom. She hasn't been given those the the direction every now and then. Which you're a parent, do you think kids need that sort of boundary and, and direction?
1: Well, that's just it, and it's like, and, and everyone's doing that. We, even even Richard Clarkin's character is like, just pick an elective, man. It's like TikTok is like, just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what it is. Just pick something, and I, and then way it's like it's almost it's almost a story of people getting being given too much freedom and how that's a bad thing as well, because, I mean, you brought up the parents earlier and, and just the sense that it's like, they're both kind of vying to be her best friend. And, uh, and then that goes horribly wrong for both of them. Um, and even in that moment at the end, when the, when the, the mother kind of becomes her alibi and they both let Ben off the hook with the, the, the police officer or whoever that guy is, um, you know it's it's done as a moment of being like hey let's let's be cool with each other You know, it's, it's, she doesn't, the mother doesn't do it to protect Ben. She does it to try to get on her daughter's side.
0: And also, there's that, like, oh, I want to, it's it's almost under the pretense of I want to let you make your own choices. You're an independent woman. It's like, no, she is 16. You are her parent, and that is a predator. And you actually don't know what was happening. And you let someone else, socially, that's so irresponsible, right? You let someone off the hook who might do this again. It's not about your daughter. It's very self-centered. Yeah,
1: no, it is. It's interesting. But even like the dad's like constantly treating her like a best friend, trying to get her to go to concerts and buying her the phone, even though the mom doesn't want her to have the phone. It's interesting. I mean, I don't have teenagers, thank God, yet. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, and my wife's just uh the other room <laughs> looking at me, not looking at me. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because we, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out what the hell to do as parents. And that's, and that's how I identify with a movie like this now is I kind of, not necessarily I see it through the, the parent's point of view, but I just see how that angle has worked too. I mean, it's funny, like my wife and I are just, she just read it and she passed along to me this book called Out of Control. Uh, not that we have kids that are out of control, but it's just this idea of gen- this generation of kids who, like discipline doesn't work on, you know? And so how do you, how do you work with children in that sense? And kind of the thing that... Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about a lot in our house is this idea of just natural consequences, you know, cause so often this is like, you know, parents ground their kids for arbitrary reasons or it's like, Oh, you didn't clean your, your room well you can't go to your friend's house. So what does that one thing have to do with the other? You know, they're not learning anything about that as opposed to just natural consequences of, you know, our kids, the last thing they would ever want to be do is be late for school. Cause then they have to go to the principal's office and it's like well, maybe just let them be late for school. And that's you know, and then they have to do the thing they hate doing, and that's and that's more of a natural consequence than well, if you don't get ready for school on time, you don't get to have screen time later, which has nothing to do with one or the other. And I have to say, like, this is I'm I'm sounding like this is my, my philosophy. I'm just starting to figure this shit out because I am that guy who's just like I will figure out the thing you want the most and take it away from you because I'm trained as a, as a storyteller to be like take away the thing the first character wants the most.
0: Uh, Throw as much conflict as possible at Yeah, (laughs) But it's
1: also like, oh, but then, you know, the good storyteller in me goes, no, it has to be organic, though. And I'm going, yeah, okay, right. And so that's the kind of thing that we we're thinking a lot, too. And so and but so it's also the thing where I think about what the mom does at the end. uh, And this isn't to defend the mom. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it's like the idea of natural consequences in this situation are that uh, I don't know what like what what are her consequences in this movie? Like, what does she lose? Out of this, like nothing really. She kind of comes out. I of this, don't
0: think she loses the movie. I think she wins the movie. Oh, she wins because the, she finds. Sure. Yeah. But I mean,
1: yeah. Like, what is it, there's no consequence to for her for what she's gone through. Like, she comes out of this a, a bit smarter, a bit like having had a little bit of experience. I mean, she's not a virgin anymore. I guess if, if we're if we if we believe the text that she sends the teacher.
0: Oh, she's drunk enough. She totally did. Um, But I think there's something, I think she learned a little bit about heartbreak. And I I also want to say that she, unfortunately, I think she learned a lot about manipulation and when it works and when it doesn't work. Because the last thing that happens is she tries to work her charm on the bartender, played by my friend Antonio, which I was very excited to see him pop Uh up. She tries to use her charm on the bartender and he boots her out, you know? So she's learning about the boundaries of her charm and what she can and can't get away with, which I think for anyone is a very valuable lesson. How much can you charm your way out of something?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean the one thing that she does do at the end of the movie as well is he – Charlie – I don't Charlie's the actor, Ben, alludes to, uh, you know, do you want to get a bite to eat? And she's like, no. Yeah. You know, so at least at that point – because, you know, that could just become an endless cycle. She's at least learned that, you know, this is not okay. What they were doing was not okay. But that doesn't mean she's not going to continue to use her feminine wiles to try to get a drink at the bar.
0: Exactly. And I think at that point, too, I mean, everyone has their moment where they realize their parents are deeply fallible. Uh, And I think this was her moment of realizing just how fallible her parents were and that she's outgrown them. Which is very scary at sixty. Yeah, uh, we were talking on uh, the show that uh, we did about your film, How to Plan an Origin in a Small Town, with uh, Rosemary Dunsmore and Danielle Ayao, about uh, reviewers and reviewers not necessarily understanding a film uh, like like How to Plan an Orgy in a Small Town. And with this film, also people did not get it. Um, they thought it was just a very standard, you know, Lolita story. In fact, she's reading Lolita right in the middle of the movie, um, and that it's it's a movie that vilifies Molly, not Ben, which was a very weird point of view. At what point are you able to just sort of dismiss what reviewers have to say? And at what point do you want to apply things to the film uh, that, you, that you've that you created? Do you wish you could go back and do Oh, something? as a
1: filmmaker? Yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, here's the thing. I wish I was mature enough to say that I didn't read reviews. Um, <laughs> I wish I was that cool. Uh, I don't know if, if anyone is. Bless you. Good for you for having that kind of discipline. I mean, I, th- I think it's also important to know what people think, whether you agree with it or not. To know know how certain people are viewing your movie. Um, and I mean, and for me, it's all about the feed, the, the cycle of feedback. And it's you know, it's similar to when I send out a script for notes, or I get friends to watch something. If you know, if ten people are saying the same thing, then well, you probably should listen to that. Uh, if ten people are saying he's saying something different, then it's like oh then everything works fine and it's just their opinion. And then you can pluck out what you like of any of them and dismiss any of that. So I think, you know, as, as anything, you have to look at, at, at what's coming at you. And if everyone's saying the same thing, that's definitely something you have to look at. And so, and the one thing, nice thing about, I found about any negative feedback that I, I had from, you know, how to plan an origin in a small town, for example, was that it all seemed to be different Um, there was, it wasn't like one person, like like 10 people jumped onto one particular thing. It was that it's like, oh, they thought the movie was going to be sexier than it was. And so whatever the expectation they had in their head before they watched it, they're now judging the movie by. And it's like, well, that's not fair. It's like, you should judge the movie by its opening 10 minutes in terms of your expectations for it. You know, or it's trailer and, and and who knows, it's like a lot of that's the, some of the U.S. reviewers and, you know, the, the marketing campaign and the posters and stuff were not necessarily posters that we preferred. Like the one poster that we loved that they never did was, you know, a, a, a picket fence house with a garden gnome in front of it and a pair of panties over top the garden gnome. And I'm like, that's, oh, that's, I'm nice. like, that's the tone of our movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and that sort of thing. And they went with something that was a bit more sexy. And uh, and I kind of flagged it. Then I'm like, that's going to sell the wrong movie to people. And it's like, yeah, but it'll sell to more people. I was like, okay, sure. <laughs>
0: um, We're just going to cast a really wide net. And the people who want to stay stuck are going to stay yep. stuck. It's going to be good. But that's
1: fine. But, but, but that's, I can't, you know. Did the reviews hurt the movie? I mean, we sold the film in eighteen different territories, so it's in a bunch of countries. It opened on like seventy-two th- theaters in Finland, I believe. Uh, so the, the movie did really, really well around the world, despite you know a couple critics in the states not liking it. Uh, and at least, and the nice thing was, I was able to wa- read pretty much most of those negative reviews and just be like, oh, it just wasn't for you. And that's fine because not every movie is for me. I don't like every movie I see. I don't expect every reviewer to look at every movie I see. I mean you go to Rotten Tomatoes, no almost no movie has a hundred percent. You know, and that says something. It's and you know, you want to be in the upper echelon, obviously. Uh, but it's also the kind of thing where it's like you, you know, there's something to be said about niche films. And uh, and in particular, they, like the last film I made, The Go Getters, which is also out now on VOD, you can uh, check that out, viewers. Um,
0: Excellent plug, well done. But that's
1: the irony of that movie, is that when Jordan Walker and I decided we wanted to make it, you know, we said this is a movie that three out of ten people are gonna like, but those three people are gonna love it, and that's all we care about for this movie. And then ultimately, it ended up being our our best reviewed movie. <laughs> You know, but I think that says something to just going, I, you know, I think as long as we make the thing we set out to make and we don't try to pander to anybody, well, it'll be okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I read it, I read the reviews and, and, you know, reviewers are just human beings like anyone, you know, they're going to have, they're going to be, and and it's not that they're right or wrong. It's just all subjective. You know, literally what they're doing is their job is designed to be subjective and people, you know, read them because they like their point of view. And so, you know, I, and I'm friends with some some critics as well. Uh, and and one of them once, and I was kind of asking once about like, what's your, like, how do you position yourself? You know, because I think of like some of the great reviewers like Robert, Roger Ebert. And, um, and I legitimately believe he walked into every movie wanting to love it. You know, wanting to find the thing to love in it. Where a lot of modern reviewers, I find are just kind of looking for a way to like make fun of a movie in a, in a funny way, or just to like have something, have a witty headline that shits on the movie.
0: Did you see that thing with, um, oh, what is his name? John Kransky talking about um, how Paul Thomas Anderson told him he's not allowed to make fun of bad movies anymore. He was talking about, yeah, how you if you if you deride films, especially unique, unusual films, no one's going to make them anymore because they're just going to be like, oh, well, that sucks. Why would we make anything like that?
1: Well, that's just it. It's just like, I think it just comes down to you have to understand that not everything is for you and that's okay. And so, mm. you know, I think it's it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, someone I think John August made a comment about like he his, he just uh, he's a screenwriter, but he also uh, wrote a, a really fun little kids book called Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire, and he was talking about how like looking at reviews on Goodreads that he's getting, and he's like, I don't understand the five star system. It's like you either like something or you don't. It's like it's a thumb up or it's a thumb down. <laughs> and I was like, what what makes something like a a a three instead of a four, and and all that, and it's like, huh? It's like I don't know. I I, I can. I know when I love, love a movie and when I'm like, I think a movie is okay. And when I know, I'm like, I don't love it. But it's like I try to, I mean, I'm also just a believer in throwing positive energy into stuff. And so I don't love everything. But it's like, you know, if I watch something terrible, it's pretty rare that I jump on Twitter or social media and be like, this was a shit show. You know, and, and just flame on something just for the sake of flaming on it. I kind of feel like, well, it wasn't for me. I'm going to move on and uh, and try to find something I do like and and try to promote that. And I'm sure if you go through my social media history, you'll find, ex- you know, examples where I have shit on something. Uh, so uh, so I apologize for my hypocrisy, but I, I try to make a conscious effort to go, oh, it's not for me. I'm going to move on because this is for somebody. Everyone loves something. Even and, and there's people out there that just love bad movies. You know, there's podcasts about that. You know, very popular podcasts about that. So, so the the the, 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 comment, the quote from my reviewer friend, our critic friend, is he says that he sees himself as the guardian of everyone's ten dollars. Mm. And and I challenged that because I was like, well, you can't be the guardian for everyone's twelve dollars because not everyone likes everything you like. You know, so I said what you should be is the guardian of your own $12 and explain why you think you would spend $12 to see it or not. And then based on that, people can decide whether or not they would want to see it.
0: Here's what I think. I think that um, we should definitely exchange written reviews for, like, a pain chart with, like, all those different faces of, like, you know, it's this kind of happy face or it's this kind of, like, agonized face. And then, like, slot things into categories of, like, I was uncomfortable in a good way. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Because that's also a feeling you can have. Like, this movie disturbed and upset me but i liked it that's exactly how i how i needed to feel because that's also a very complicated emotion to to articulate and i think the value of a good critic when we find someone like roger ebert who can articulate that for the masses of like you are going to love this because it's going to make you feel this way which is the entire point of movies to feel or to think that's when we find someone who has a voice for everybody
1: that's just it and i think you know the the best reviewers they understand that that's their job their job is to go oh the people that like this kind of movie will like this you know and and i didn't necessarily like it but i also like these kind of movies and so you know your taste might not be my own that's why whenever i'm at a restaurant and someone asked the waiter to uh, recommend something. I'm like, why do you know what this waiter likes? Like, what is their <laughs> taste buds? Are you kidding me? Like, well, you're going to just, they could like the weirdest food.
0: But they also know how long the lamb has been sitting there.
1: This is fair. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not saying so don't don't get no. recommendations, but to just say one specific dish that they love. I'd, I'd rather, like the way I always phrase it, if I can't decide between two things, I'm like, if I died tomorrow... And I could only eat this or this. Which one should I eat? But I try to narrow it down for myself as opposed to just going, in this entire menu, what should I eat?
0: Oh, that's how See, for me, I'm at the point now where, like, I just get to the first thing that I know I want and I stop. Because otherwise it's just going to be a debate.
1: I know. That's my danger of even places that I that are, like, in my neighborhood that I go to is I just always – I'm staring at that one thing that I had that the first time I went that I really liked – and I'm like, do I really want to roll the dice and try something else?
0: This is your $12. Yeah.
1: Well, that's just it. But it's like, wait, well, in theory, I liked that first thing I tried. I would probably like the next thing I tried. But I also uh, I also just want the safe bet. So, But to your point, what you were saying about not people that, that article, I mean, I think, you know, the more I try to dive into older movies and movies I haven't seen as opposed to just rewatching the same movies I love is that I think it's like it's fun to risk a not safe bet.
0: Yeah, entirely, and I think that's uh, that's the entire point of, of sequels, right? It's like successful sequels are the one that give ones that give us that little bit of taste of what we loved about the first one, but spin it off a little bit more so that we're getting something more and ex- more exciting that's growing and
1: building. Yeah, and the smart audiences get that that's what they're doing, and the and the dumb ones just go, "Well, it wasn't the same as the last one." But th- you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you make a repeat, yeah. then you get shit on for that, and if you do something new. You get dumped on for that. I mean, that was the whole thing about, uh, you know, the first two new Star Wars movies. The, you know, Force Awakens, everyone dumped on it because it was too close to a retread of A New Hope. Um, and then Rain Johnson came in and kind of like did, you know, did did a lot of stuff that was tropey too of Star Wars, but also brought in a bunch of new stuff to it and was like, whoa, this is too different. It's like, well, what do you people but want? I mean-
0: that's why J.J. Abrams got in so much trouble for Star Trek because it was too different, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just what he does. He's like, I can't, like, he can't win either way that J.J. J. Abrams. It's a good thing he goes to bed in a pile of money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he sleeps
1: just fine.
0: <laughs> he's fine. So, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time. We have to do favorite moments.
1: Oh, favorite moments. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I just like all the moments where Lola Tash, who plays Molly, um, just becomes. We just see her switch from one like the identity she's trying to be to who she really is, which is just this goofy kid who's trying to figure stuff out. So it's like that, that, that fellatio scene. Um, and then the moment where she, she sticks her head under his t shirt. And, th- and that, those are the moments where it feels really real to me. And that's, the, those are the moments that I just go, oh, she's just a kid, you know, she's still. She's just a kid. And I I just love that those are included. And it's not just... Because you could... You know, it's easy enough to tell the story and just make it sexy. You know? And just do that Lolita thing. Or just make it really... Or just make them really sweet together and make it tragic. Like, I don't feel like it has a tragic ending. I feel like it ends the way it should. And that it's not a bad thing that they're not together. You know? I think that's the one strength, too, that it has. It doesn't lament the loss of their relationship. It just goes, yeah... They both needed that at the time. He needed to probably not be in a school <laughs> anymore because mm-hmm. he was, you know, clearly susceptible to this kind of thing. How about you?
0: Oh man, uh, this is a tough one because there's so much about this I loved, but I think I, I really enjoy when they're on the island together because uh, first and foremost, it looks gorgeous. Uh, secondly, just like you, there's this incredible interplay of the boundaries in between the two of them, of like they're. It's before their relationship starts, but they're testing the waters. They're already taboo because they're off campus and they shouldn't be. Um, but you're just watching the two of them, just sort of like it's almost like an intricate game of shuffleboard, you know? But the table slanted. It's great. Yeah,
1: I like that. Yeah, I like that analogy.
0: I'm, I'm totally into it. It's uh, yeah, I liked this movie way more than I should have. Yeah, and <laughs> every and every scene it's with Richard Clarkin,
1: I enjoy. I find his characters so good.
0: Oh, he's so good because here's the thing. He plays everything straight. Like that character could have been so winky and so like flower childy. And he doesn't like he believes everything that's coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Oh, he's he's best. one of those, oh, the,
1: one of our most underrated actors.
0: I would agree. Like even him in Goon, he steals every scene he is in in that. yeah. Film. Have
1: you seen dr- the Drawer boy?
0: Not yet. Oh. No, it's uh, my friend Courtney's in it. I'm desperate to see it.
1: So goddamn good.
0: Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So next on the list, we got to get someone to come in and talk about it. That's the that's the thing. Getting people to pick these movies, Jeremy. It's true.
1: It's true. Well, I thank you for having me on, and I thank you for doing one of my movies recently too. That, that was very. It was a nice little treat.
0: My pleasure. And I didn't even pick it. Rosemary was like, oh, I'd love to do this. And I was like, you may as well. Bless her. great.
1: Bless Rosemary. I know,
0: she's the best. Um, and that having been said, how do people find you and
1: your work? Oh, uh, I'm on all over the social webs and the internet things. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Lalonde Jeremy. Uh, I am also. I have a, a, a podcast of my own that I do through thatshelf.com. Um, It's called Black Hole Films. You can also find it on Apple Podcasts and pretty much anywhere that you could listen to a podcast, it is on there. And that's a a podcast about... I sit down once a week with people and we watch a movie that myself or they have never seen before and then we talk about it right away.
0: Fantastic. So you, you don't even have time to process anything, no, process anything until it's running. And
1: that's, that's kind of the beauty of it. The whole point of the, the show is about watching someone discover something for the first time and have to just like dump out their garbage thoughts.
0: And so, yeah, go check that out because I'm literally adding it to my iTunes as we speak because you also have cool friends who I'm sure are very insightful. Yeah, yeah, that helps. Uh, and then as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters. I am at Liz Shrimpton over there. That's the masculine Liz Shrimpton. You can find me on Instagram, Caridia underscore extravaganza. I have a new podcast coming out from the Globe and Mail, Globe Content Studios and Microsoft. Uh, it's called AI Meets World. And I'm talking to people who are way smarter than I am about very, very cool technical things with my co-host Navneet Alang, who is... Is a very, very funny man, and you're all going to fall in love with. I think that's just about everything. So, Jeremy. Yeah. Do you want to go get a moose head?
1: Uh, is that is that your sponsor? Uh,
0: no, I don't, I, but I, I do, just like I it. don't drink beer.
1: <laughs> but I'll, I'll get like a scotch with you. You want to grab a scotch?
0: Let's do it. You can have
1: a moose wood. I'll have a scotch.
0: <laughs> a moosewood? Excellent. Moosewood. I think we have a new brewery. I made, I bet, Toronto doesn't have enough of those. I
1: made a film called Mrs. and Mrs. Moosewood. a short years ago, so that was my, unref- my unintentional plug for that.
0: Uh, <laughs> well done. Yeah, no, my, uh, my tag is just Do you want to get a moosehead because on our fourth episode, we did My Bloody Valentine, and there is moosehead beer all over that film. Like, it's in every time they're drinking in every scene, which is every scene, they're drinking moosehead on like all the signage is all moosehead beer. And I was just like, were they actually sponsored by them? So I called Moosehead, and the answer is no. It's just that was the only beer that was available at that
1: time. So, well, sometimes what happens is you don't get necessarily sponsored like money, but you get free product. So that way oh, okay. they they would probably would have got like cases and cases of moose head for the rap party and then they if they threw it in the movie
0: huh well i know with strange brew uh, they pitched to molson to have molson sponsor them and molson was like no <laughs> you're not finding a dead mouse in our beer that's fair. that's fair yeah i thought that was pretty fair thank you so much this was awesome thank you thanks for listening to the royal canadian movie podcast if you like what we're doing please remember to rate us and subscribe on itunes or on your favorite podcatcher it helps people find our podcast and canadian media they love come chat with us at rcm pod on facebook or on twitter at rcm pod our theme song is by craig stewart and our show art is by paul stachniak join us next week for another great film from the wilds of canadian cinema